0: It was magical, it was mystical, it was bigger than me. This was the greatest athletic achievement of my life. Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 96. In honor of, nobody will know this but me, my all-time favorite one-hit wonder from the 1960s, 96 Tears, by a garage band called Question Mark and the Mysterians. A song that in October of 1966 skyrocketed to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. YouTube it. Check it out. Too many teardrops for one heart to be crying. Oh, that organ. And oh, I hope my Cowboys don't cry 96 tears this Sunday evening. This, as always, is the un undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during Undisputed, in episode 96, I will definitely share with you this. I will tell you the bizarre backstory to my greatest ever athletic achievement, which happened Tuesday. I'll also tell you why I'm putting so much pressure on Mike McCarthy and on Dak Prescott. I'll also tell you why I don't watch the Spurs quite as closely or with nearly as much heart and soul as I used to. I'll tell you how many hours I have spent on television. I'll even answer a question from Jordan Love. Really? But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. And I will start with a question from Felix from Arizona. What happens when you get injured and you can't work out? Does that ever happen? I'm going to use Felix's question as a gateway into the aforementioned my greatest athletic moment of my life. So bear with me on this. But, Felix, yes, I do get hurt. Seems like I'm always hurt with something, some overuse injury. But, no, I have never, ever missed a cardio workout because of an injury. I have missed three cardio workouts in the last 25 years because I was just too sick to work out. I won't go into the gory details. I caught hepatitis A from bad sushi. I had some form of vertigo, vomiting that cost me a day. I had food poisoning back in my days in Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN off bad eggs that I ate. Vomiting, I just couldn't go for a day. I have had, though, four surgeries in the last 25 years, three knee scopes, didn't miss a workout, worked out that morning, went straight home, got right on the exercise bike after knee scope surgery, and rode my exercise bike to get my range of motion back in gear, recommended by my surgeon. After my biceps tendon surgery. Next morning, I was up and at them and on my treadmill running because, obviously, the surgery was on my arm and not my legs. But now, speaking of treadmill, lately, I've been doing my hardest run, my fastest run, every Sunday on my home treadmill during the 1 o'clock Eastern NFL games. But I've been having an issue on these runs, which go for one hour. I try to break my record, see if I can go farther for an hour that I've gone before on the treadmill. But I've been having an issue with my right shoelace. I don't know why. It will not stay tied. Nothing drives me crazier in life than getting 50 minutes into a 60-minute treadmill run at for me high speed and having my shoelace my bleeping shoelace come untied because once it does there's nothing you can do about it you can't keep going because it's just too dangerous if you trip and fall going full speed on a treadmill bad stuff will ensue so you have to stop down back off the treadmill you're dripping wet. You retie your shoe. You heave a sigh. You have to get back on and try to work back up to that mile per hour. I, I by the end of the workout, I'm trying to go as close to seven miles an hour as I can get. It's just so in. It, 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 it it's just so annoying. So last Sunday. Last thing I did before I got on the treadmill was, you know what? Not today. Right shoelace. So I cinched it up tight. I made sure all the laces all the way to the bottom were cinched tight. No slack anywhere. I yanked it as tight as I could, and then I tied it in a double knot. I said, nope, you're not going to get me today. And off I went. And I ran great. I was cooking. I was watching Baker Mayfield at Carolina trying to cinch the division. I was getting lost in what Baker wasn't doing versus what Bryce wasn't doing. And all of a sudden, at about the 50 minute mark, though I don't want to look, I want to try to get as close to 60 and guess that I'm close to 60, so I don't flip out and say, oh my God, I got 15 minutes left. But it was around the 50-minute mark, because I finally had to look, that my right ankle began to ache. And I thought, God, this is weird. I've turned my ankles on both sides in my running shoes outside, outdoors, potholes, bumps, whatever. I've turned it over, and when you're in the running shoes, especially if you have an insert like I do, If you turn your ankle completely over and it touches concrete, you got problems. But the one problem you don't have when you turn your ankle that way outside is it doesn't stop you from getting home because you can still sort of trudge along straight ahead because that's not how you hurt yourself going straight ahead. You turned it, so you can't go side to side on it, but you can still sort of waddle along, putting one foot after the other as long as you keep them straight. But in this case, I didn't turn my ankle on the treadmill. I didn't do anything to my ankle. I didn't trip. I didn't start to fall. I didn't do anything. I was running hot. (sighs) But my ankle started to burn. And I thought, what is this? Of all the injuries I've fought through, I've never had this. And it got so bad, I didn't think I could finish. But. I did. I toughed it out. Sucked it up. I tried to concentrate on the football game. And somehow I got through the final 10 minutes of my run. And I got off my treadmill. And I took off my right shoe to assess the damage. And I pulled off my right sock. And I was astounded to see my ankle was already ballooning up like I had sprained it badly. Ballooning up. Worse, it was starting to get very red on the top, but along the edges it was starting to get sort of black and bluish, which can happen when you turn your ankle, but not like this. I'm talking about black and blue looking down to the base of my foot. What was this? Dumbfounded, a little lost. Monday morning. I could barely walk. I've told you before, I always run from my dressing room up the stairs down a long hall to the studio for Undisputed. I tried, but I couldn't. So Monday afternoon. I finally broke down thanks to the encouragement of my wife, Ernestine, and I called our podiatrist, Dr. Alonji, Beverly Hills, California, great guy, great doctor, Buffalo Bills fan, good luck to your team. He wanted pictures, we took pictures, I sent, we were about to drive to his office, and he got on the phone with me and he said, look, explain this to me, and I told him about how Tied my shoe so tight. He said, You broke a blood vessel. It's clear you broke a blood vessel. I broke a blood vessel so only I could pull this one off. Only I could tie my right shoe so tightly and I could run so hard against the cinched up shoelaces that I would burst a blood vessel in my right ankle. I think we have a picture. Maybe we're showing it as I speak of what my right ankle looked like on Monday afternoon. Ernestine was calling me elephant man and she was getting more and more concerned because it was looking more and more black and blue. And I said, it's the blood. It's going everywhere from the broken vessel. So Dr. Alonji said, take some extra Motrin, which I did. I kind of doubled up on that anti-inflam. I've got some Voltaren gel. I highly recommend it. I don't endorse it. I'm just telling you it works. It's an anti inflamm topical ointment. And I went with the magic healer on Monday evening. Called ice. Ice is it for me. I ice every night. I ice my knees. Sometimes I ice my shoulders. Always my knees. Any other injury I have. Elbow, whatever, I put ice on it because it is the magic healer. Trust me, nothing like it in this world. Ice will heal better than anything else you can do to an injury. I iced through the entire national championship game, Michigan over Washington. The the whole, how did did it go? Three and a half hours, maybe? I kept the ice with an ACE bandage just wrapped tightly against my ankle. And, of course, I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And despite the advice or the orders of Dr. Alonji, who said no more exercise for three or four days, I said, nope, I'm doing it. And I got on my upright exercise bike. You can almost always exercise bike. You're just pushing down. It it didn't hurt my ankle whatsoever. I couldn't even feel it. Ernestine was horrified. But I, I did it. I did it fine. I didn't go as fast as, you know, pump as hard as I usually do. But I got through an hour on the upright exercise bike on Monday morning. I'm sorry, on Tuesday morning. And then I got to the show. And I made it through the show. And I went down to my dressing room after the show. And I pulled off my sock, and it looked like some of the swelling had gone down, still very black and bluish. But some swelling had gone down, and some of the pain had subsided because it felt like for the previous 24, 36 hours, I had a migraine in my ankle. So just about every Tuesday, I try to duck out after the show and drive the 20-odd Minutes from the Fox Lot here in West Los Angeles out to Brentwood Country Club, where I am a member. And I try to, to get in nine holes if it's not too crowded. Some days I just hit balls, chip, putt, practice. Try to play nine holes with two buddies of mine who are always there at that hour, a retired dentist, and a very current psychiatrist. It's a very good player. Getting better. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to drive out there. I probably can't play, but I'm going to test it out. Maybe I'll just try the first hole, and if I can make it, I'll make it, and if I can't, I'll just turn around and go home. And I found right away I could feel my ankle on number one, but it, it actually wasn't that bad. It's my right foot. I'm right-handed, so it's my push-off foot. And I was definitely a little tentative pushing off. I was definitely wary of pushing too hard on my right foot. It definitely messed up my timing. And in the first five holes, I had three double bogeys, which is not like me. But I didn't really care because I didn't really hurt. It was a beautiful January 9th day here in Los Angeles. It was 62 degrees and very, very sunny. And I was just thankful to be alive in Los Angeles while much of the rest of this country is gripped by winter storms. But finally, on number six, the number one handicap hole on the golf course. Forgive me if there's too much golf lingo for those who don't know, but y- you'll see why. Number six at Brentwood is an uphill dogleg par four into the wind. It's a hard hole for me, probably a hard hole for everybody. I don't have much choice but to lay up on the hole, so I hit my second shot just a little short of the green because it is guarded by tombs of doom by deep bunkers, the likes of which will not let you out many times in one try. I don't want any part of any of that sand, so I lay up to 50, 60 yards so I can hit sort of a a fairly full 60-degree wedge, my loftiest wedge. And I hit one right at the flag on number six on Tuesday. And it almost went in. It was very close. I couldn't really see it, but it was very close because I had a tap-in par on the hardest hole on the course. And I thought, you know what? I'm okay. Here we go. So now on to number seven at Brentwood. It's a downhill par three into the wind. And that wind had kicked up pretty stiffly at that point off the Pacific Ocean, which is a mile or so away from Brentwood. So I don't play the back tee boxes. I'm not that good or that long. I play the second set of tees called the white tees. That hole on Tuesday was playing 146 yards to a very back left pin, again, into the wind, and it always, for me, plays a little longer than the distance, this time, 146 yards. So for me, it's just a nice, full, pretty good 7-iron. It's just, it's just a nice 7-iron, not an over-swung 7-iron, not a swing-from-the-heel heels 7 iron just a, a nice, sweet 7-iron I know the hole, play it all the time. So I set up to the ball. I took the club back, the top of my swing. I held it for a count longer because I was starting to feel more confident. My right push off foot. And then I powered down through the ball. Perfectly in sequence. And magic happened. I've hit a lot of good shots on number seven. It's probably my favorite hole. Fits my eye. I don't know, four or five of those shots have actually sniffed the cup. This is over the last five years that I've been a member there. I don't know what I've made. I don't count. Maybe I've made 10 or 12. I don't, maybe even 15 birdies on number seven. To me, it's the easiest hole on the course. But this tee shot that I hit on Tuesday was very different than any I've ever hit on that hole. I usually hook my irons But this one, I hit dead, solid, perfectly. This one, I hit so purely that the only way I can describe it to you is that feeling for me was better than any sex I've ever had. And I love sex. But as you can see, I really love golf. I launched a dead straight rocket of a seven iron. Medium height. It just split the wind. It was just right off my club face, laser locked on the flag. It felt meant to be, right off the club face. My hands told me meant to be. The feeling that eased up through my forearms told me meant to be. I swear to you, from my heart, I thought as the ball rose, that might go in. Now, for those who don't know golf, holes in one are very rare. I had never had one. Started at age 14, never had one. I had resigned myself to believe I never would have one. The the odds I read on the internet of making a hole in one or 12,500 to 1. But I don't buy that for a second. Trust me on this. For me, a hole in one is at least 1 billion to 1, at least. And I think I'm underselling that. Since age 14, I have played thousands and thousands of par 3s. Most courses have four par threes in 18 holes, four shorter holes that you can actually reach with your first shot, your tee shot. So you you have four chances in 18 holes of making what's called an ace, a hole in one. Now, I've holed out Numerous second shots on par fours, the the medium length holes that require two shots to get to the green. Second shots to those I've, I've hold out. I don't know. I don't keep count, but it seems like 15 or 20 in my life I've hold out. So that's a two on a par four, which is called an Eagle. And I've either chipped in or made long putts back in the day on the longer holes, the longest holes, the par fives. For a three on the par fives, that's also called an eagle, two under par. But I had never, ever had an eagle on a par three because that would be a one, that would be a hole in one. You have to understand if you don't play golf, and you will understand if you do. You can't try to make a hole in one. It's just too hard. You can't make it a bucket list goal of yours because you just can't force it. It it just has to happen. You know, obviously, it helps if you hit a lot of good shots to par threes, a lot of good shots at the flags. And I would tell you, I'm I'm just pretty good at golf. I'm obsessed with it. I don't get to play as much as I would like to. I'm still addicted to it, but I, I would say I'm just pretty good at at Brentwood, which I find to be a very hard golf course, it's just hard. It's hard to putt there. The greens are like funhouse mirror tough. But at Brentwood, I shoot 85 usually. I'm right around 85. If I make some putts, I can occasionally break 80. I can also shoot 92. But I'm usually around, you know, make five pars and the rest are bogeys. Maybe. 12 or 13 over the par, which is 72 in that 85-ish range, would you believe that in my life, in my golf life, as much golf as I have played over low these many years all over the world, only once did I ever witness a hole-in-one made by a playing partner, somebody in my group, one of the three or four players I was playing with, in this case, It was back in maybe 1998. I was back home for a week, back in Oklahoma City in the summer to visit, playing with my best friend from high school, Craig Humphreys. Shout out to him. He just retired as a radio legend in Oklahoma City. So I was playing with Craig and his older brother, Kirk, and if you know anything about Oklahoma City or you happen to be from Oklahoma City listening, Kirk, once upon a time, was the mayor of Oklahoma City, and a powerhouse of a mayor was Kirk. I think he might have still been the mayor at this point, but I could be wrong about that. But we played at Kirk's course called Gallardia in Oklahoma City, great golf course, and Kirk barely plays golf. I don't know. It just seems like he might play if Somebody happened to ask him. He might play like three or four times a year in some event. It felt like this was the one time of year that he was playing because I was in town. And it seemed like it was on the 16th hole. Kirk Humphreys, not much of a golfer, made an ace. I witnessed it. It went in. Kirk Humphreys made a hole in one. And I must be honest with you, and forgive me for this, Kirk and Craig had a hard time celebrating with him because I kept thinking, how can he have a hole-in-one, and I don't? That was back in 1998. So now 25, six years later, I'm thinking, I'm never going to have a hole-in-one. There's just something about it that doesn't like me because it has to be mystically meant to be. Somehow the golf gods just don't like me. But this shot that I hit on number seven on Tuesday was unlike any golf shot I've ever hit in my life. For me, and I'm going to go way back here, but it was the equivalent of Ben Hogan's one iron on the 18th hole at Marion in Philadelphia. Final hole, the U.S. Open. A one iron shot that became the cover of Life magazine, arguably the most famous shot in the history of golf. This was my Ben Hogan one iron into the wind on number seven with a seven iron. This is why I so love the movie Caddyshack, the best movie about golf, though Tin Cup is up there. But this shot for me was the equivalent. Of Chevy Chase's character in Caddyshack, Ty. No, 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 no. You know the movie, you know the reference. This shot to me was the equivalent of the bishop playing the round of his life in a thunderstorm with Bill Murray caddying for him. Talk about be the ball, a famous phrase from Caddyshack. I was that golf ball. In fact, that golf ball was a Titleist 1 with the Fox logo on it, fittingly. It was the greatest golf shot I have ever hit, ever felt. When it landed, it took quite a chunk out of the green, maybe... 15, 20 feet short of the pin. The screen is hard to hold. It can be concrete-ish. Balls can skip to the back bunker, the death bunker, because it's all downhill back to the flag from there. This pin was dangerously close to that back bunker. But this ball hit and started tracking right at the hole like a pure putt. This shot I hit made it to the lip of the cup and on the last revolution of the golf ball, it dropped into the hole. It never touched the pin. I did not luck the shot in the way some holes in one are lucked in by banging it against the flagstick and having it sort of accidentally fall in. Nope. As pure a shot as Tiger Woods ever hit at Augusta National was this shot. And I suddenly felt like I had just won the Masters. I'm pretty sure at that moment, my playing partners were even more excited than I was, bless them. Because I was beyond excited. I was numb. I went completely, utterly, blissfully numb. I was in surreal shock. When I least expected it, it happened. I had a hole in one. Sorry, I get teary-eyed when I remember that feeling. I looked around and I thought, I wasn't even supposed to be out here. I was hurt just yesterday. There was no way I was even going to be out here. And as my best friend Craig Humphreys told me, Last night, when he called to congratulate me, having seen my post on Twitter and Instagram, as he always says, beware the wounded golfer. He's talking about pro golfers in tournaments when they're sick or hurt, and all of a sudden, they can't miss. It's because you give up and give in. You make peace. You quit trying so hard. You don't try to force it. You just let it happen blissfully and peacefully around you. You go along for the ride instead of trying to ride it so hard and ride it right into the ground. So most people tell me, have told me, that when they've made their holes and one, They just immediately fall apart for the rest of the round. Again, I was only going to play two more holes. But I was just the opposite. I went bishop in Caddyshack. I I was suddenly riding a miracle into the golf heavens. In fact, true story, as I drove to the golf course on Tuesday, not even knowing whether I'd be able to play. I listened over and over to a longtime favorite song of mine, forgive a second reference to 60s, this is actually 70s rock and roll, a song called, appropriately, Miracles by Jefferson Starship. Don't know if you know it, Miracles. I only started listening to it because I heard the day before that it was Grace Slick's 84th birthday, and I could not believe she was 84 years of age, what pipes Grace Slick had and still I'm sure has as one of the driving forces of Jefferson's starship. Miracles, I listened to it probably six or seven times in a row on the way to the golf course. So, on the next hole, the par 5 eighth, I lipped out a birdie putt. And on the par 4 ninth hole, I hit the greatest long bunker shot. It was a 30-yard bunker shot I've ever hit in my life to within tap-in range for a par. So, I finished my round par, eagle, par, par. To shoot only 42 because of my three double bogeys to start off with. And I didn't care. I got to ring the bell at Brentwood. It's a tradition there if you have a hole-in-one. You stand by the bell. They take your picture. You can probably see it now if you're watching this. I posted it on Twitter and Instagram. There's a plaque next to the bell, as you can see. A hole in one, this world to tell. Step right up and ring the bell. It's just a tradition. It's a very loud bell. And I rang it just one big, loud time. And everybody all over the golf course perks up and says, Aha, another one dropped. This was. the greatest athletic achievement of my life. And I know you non-golfers are saying golf requires no athletic ability. Ask Tiger Woods if that's true. You don't have to be in great shape to play golf. You can be overweight and be great at golf, but you better be sneaky athletic and you better have supreme hand-eye coordination. So I've mentioned before, back in eighth grade, Taft Junior High School. Biggest junior high school in the state of Oklahoma at that time. Around 1,400 kids combined seventh and eighth grade. I was chosen athlete of the year. Didn't measure up to this. Summer after that, went to a basketball camp. Kids from all over Texas and Oklahoma. And I was chosen MVP. Did not remotely measure up to this. This was it. This was the essence for me of athletic achievement because holes in one are so damned hard to make. This somehow felt to me immediately like an omen like a sign of great things to come. It was magical. It was mystical. It was bigger than me. And I immediately thought of my Dallas Cowboys. Which brings me to our next question from Aiden from Medfield, Massachusetts. How many playoff wins for the Cowboys for Mike McCarthy to earn back your respect? So, Aiden. Obviously, at least two. You got to have two you got to go. It's as simple as that. The NFL heavens have opened. The Jimmy curse has been lifted by Jerry Jones. Jimmy finally has gone into the ring of honor. And the NFL gods have said, let there be Dallas. All of a sudden, the Eagles have collapsed. We have won the division by default. We came very close late in the year to losing three straight games. We lost to Detroit, but the ref undid it for us. And look at us now. We did go to Washington. We did take care of business. I was highly impressed with it. But now it starts because we have proved exactly nothing. We did lose at Arizona. We did get humiliated and annihilated at San Francisco. We got run off the field at Buffalo. We gave up what seemed like a candy from baby's late drive to two and company at Miami. We lost that game to a walk-off field goal. We lost to Detroit. We've proven nothing. It starts now. I've made it clear I'm not a big Mike McCarthy fan. I love what he's done with and for Dak. I've called it the Dak and Mac attack. And all it did was finish first in the NFL and points scored just the way Kellen Moore's offense did two years ago. But neither McCarthy nor Prescott have proven one thing to me. Not one thing. Dak remains two and four in the postseason. Mike McCarthy won that long-ago, far-away Super Bowl, in large part thanks to Aaron Rodgers. Right place, right time. And then what? Neither of these two, Mike or Dak, have proven a thing to me. But I'm spoiled. I've told you before. I started when I was 10 years old. I know what it feels like to play in seven Super Bowls. I know what it feels like to win five Super Bowls. Lifelong diehard Cowboy fan. I covered Tom Landry's Dallas Cowboys. I know what those locker rooms felt like. I covered Jimmy Johnson's Dallas Cowboys. I was there. I was inside of it. I wrote three books about it. I know what good fear feels like in a locker room. I know what urgency tastes like. I know accountability in a Dallas Cowboy locker room that I don't sense as we speak. Tom Landry's teams had dynamic leadership. Roger Staubach. Drew Pearson, so many defensive stalwarts from Bob Lilly up to Randy White, Charlie Waters, Cliff Harris. I could go on and on. Charismatic leaders. Jimmy Johnson. My man, Michael Irvin. Troy Aikman. Deion Sanders. Darren Woodson, Charles Haley, I could go on and on and on. I'm not sure about the leadership in my locker room right now. I don't sense a Michael Irvin or a Troy or a Charles Haley or certainly not a Jimmy Johnson. I don't sense a driving force. I just see lots and lots of Super Bowl caliber talent. That's what I see and feel. So when Jerry, the other day after the Washington game, basically said he'll evaluate Mike McCarthy one game at a time in these playoffs, I stood up and applauded, standing O for Jerry Jones, because it felt like he was trying to take a chip off the Jimmy block after he gave in and finally enshrined Jimmy in the ring of honor, and Jerry was trying to go a little Jimmy, a little hard ass a little cold-blooded, instill a little fear, not only in the head coach, but in the locker room, that one game at a time it starts now. Accountability. Urgency. And then Jerry, on his radio show, he didn't exactly walk it back as in Michael Jackson moonwalk it back, He tiptoed away from it. He slunk away from his statement, saying he couldn't be more pleased with the job Mike has done in his fourth year as the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Blah, blah, blah. And we lost a lot of the impact, I thought, of one game at a time. I have no doubt about Mike McCarthy and Dak as a dynamic offensive duo, no doubt. I mean, you can just see it, feel it, watch it. and I don't know what else you could ask from them. Dax had his best year. Mike's had one of his best years calling plays because he, he used to be regarded as, if not the best, one of the top play callers in the league back in the Aaron glory days. I question the leadership on the part of both Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott. I'm not sure either is a natural-born leader. I, I sometimes hope and feel and glimpse a little of that in Dak, but not a lot of it. And Mike McCarthy on the sideline is too often a bump on a log. As a motivator, he's a big fat zero to me. Not his forte. So it starts now. Too many times, Mike McCarthy teams have just come out flat, not shown up. That San Francisco game a couple of years back, the home playoff game against Jimmy G, just came out flat. They weren't ready to play. Drove me nuts. Too many times this year, they just weren't ready to play. I can tell from the first series. You can see it. This team needs to be motivated either externally by the media doubting them or internally by somebody. Sometimes I think it's Demarcus Lawrence. I was hoping Micah could assume more of a leadership role this year, but I'm not sure that's his calling either. I'm not sure that's his greatest strength. I think Mike is more of a solo act, and he's a great solo act. But I need somebody to get this group ready to go. It's time. I'm turning up the heat. I need to see at least two home playoff wins. And then, of course, I would love to see a third win and at least a trip to the Super Bowl as I predicted before the season started. They're good enough. I just don't know if they're mentally strong enough. And I leave you with this, on this topic. The great Rob Gronkowski said on Fox following the Buffalo game, this is not a mentally tough football team. They're good enough. Are they mentally tough enough? We're about to find out. I got to see it, Mike, and I got to see it, Dak. All right, this is from Spencer from Chicago. Do you watch Spurs games anymore? For those who don't know, back in the day, back in my days at ESPN, back in the glory days of the San Antonio Spurs, I was the biggest Spurs supporter, fanatic, defender, debater. Go Spurs, go. I love my Spurs. I love Tim Duncan. I love Manu Ginobili. I love Tony Parker. For a while, I loved Kawhi Leonard. I loved any and everybody who played for my Spurs. What I loved the most about them was they didn't talk. They just played. They did play the right way. They didn't play spectacular basketball. They played beautiful basketball they could beat anybody anywhere any way you wanted to play they just knew how to play they were just mentally tougher than anybody else i love the spurs going back to george gervin back in the 80s i just love watching ice man play finger rolls all of his smooth icing and all the cakes that he baked in the lane—it was just, it was just so pretty to watch. So he started me, and then Timmy and Manu and Tony took me completely over the edge. But I'll be the first to admit, never liked the coach. Always thought he was overhyped, overloved. Because he was always such a bully to the people in my business. Talking about Greg Popovich. Coach Pop. So verbally abusive to so many in my business for asking routine, predictable questions that he shamed them for asking. How dare you? It was ugly, nasty, nasty. It, it, it was hard for me to watch. It's hard for me to stomach to watch him bully the media almost in ways that his favorite target, Donald Trump, he says bullies, he uses his platforms as bully pulpits. It's like pop was calling the, pop was calling the kettle black. There's just something about him that rubbed me the wrong way. The real leader of that team was Tim Duncan, one of the great leaders, underrated leaders in the history of sports. Right up there with Ray Lewis and Tom Brady and Michael Irvin, and I could go on. But he's up there, Tim Duncan. Just didn't get a lot of credit because he didn't have much to say to the media. But he led those teams. He kept them together. He made a whole lot of big shots and big plays for my Spurs that Pop got a lot of the credit for. Pop always said, the day Timmy walks out that door, I'll be right behind him. No, that was a lie. That was a bunch of phony baloney. Pop was going nowhere. Said that for Timmy's sake. I think Pop's disingenuous about a lot of things that he says. But obviously... Timmy's long gone and pops back in business. They hit the lottery. They got Victor Wimbanyama. And yet, I keep studying my Spurs, and I do still watch many of their games, not quite like I watched before, but I watch them fairly often. I watch the Lakers more just because of LeBron but I do watch my fair share of Spurs games. But it keeps driving me crazier and crazier because I don't see any progress since Timmy walked out that door without Pop right behind him. And then Manu retired, and then Tony retired, and then Kawhi got sick of Pop and quit his way out of San Antonio and via Toronto in a championship wound up with the Clippers. Pop's still there, and I don't see any progress. I don't see great coaching. I don't see genius. I see average to below average. And suddenly, he has the player, a 20-year-old, who's being hailed as maybe the greatest player ever when he reaches his peak at seven feet, whatever he is, three or four inches tall. Wimby. And I'm thinking, where's the impact on the scoreboard? As I tape this, the Spurs are about to play tonight, but as I tape this now on Wednesday, the Spurs are by far, they're four and a half games, the worst team in the West. They're five and 30. They're going to play at Detroit, which is the worst team in basketball, three and 34 Detroit. So we'll see if they win that one, but five and 30, with a player being hailed as eventually the greatest player in the history of basketball, a player who played two years of pro basketball in France, a player who is averaging 19, 10, three assists and three blocks a game, pretty great. And yet you're five and 30? Where's the coaching? Or... Are you trying, Pop, just to make the honeymoon last as long as possible? Are you trying to keep Wimby's minutes down, maybe even his impact down, so you can extend your honeymoon a couple, three years where there'll be no pressure because everybody will say, oh, he's still so young. He's just now figuring it out. I'd like to see some progress, but to me... Popovich is getting exposed just the way Bill Belichick got exposed in New England, something I predicted. Tom Brady made Bill Belichick. I don't care what you say or Michael Irvin says or Keyshawn Johnson says or Richard Sherman says on Undisputed. I don't care what anybody says. Brady made Belichick. Belichick is now 13 games under five hundred in his head coaching career without Tom Brady. Greg Popovich is just another guy without Tim Duncan. He's cleaned up his act a little bit with the media. Used to be the media would give him a break because that's just Pop. He's curmudgeon. We love Pop. He was beloved because he was such a curmudgeon. Now he's turning into more venerable old Pop. Without quite the condescension the verbal abuse, I don't know. I I just don't trust it, disingenuous. I think he's been exposed just like Belichick, but he's beloved. He's got all those rings, thanks to Timmy and Manu and Tony and Kawhi. And there's just something about the Spurs now that I can't love the way I used to. Okay, this is Cree from Houston who asks a very good but very difficult question for me to answer. How many hours of television do you think you've done in your entire career? Man, making me tired, Cree. I've had a great run. I feel like I'm just getting started. But started on a daily TV show in 2004 till 2016. I didn't take much vacation. I would work 50 weeks a year, five days a week. There are obviously some shows you'd hit and miss just because you'd get preempted by some other event or whatever. But I was on for two hours for all those years. Then starting 2016 here at FS1, going on eight years, it's a two and a half hour show. I'll take one more week of vacation. So I'm 49 weeks a year here. I've had a couple of hiatuses. I had one that I took after ESPN before I started here, and we took one last summer when we revamped and retooled Undisputed. But it's a lot of television. I I don't even have the brain power to add all that up. But I'll remind you, back in the 90s, I did five years every Monday night During the football season, maybe 20 weeks a year in Bristol, Connecticut, days I was living in Dallas, Texas, two-hour show, prelude called Prime Monday to Monday Night Football. One year in Dallas. Would you believe I did the Troy Aikman show as the analyst on that show? 20 straight weeks. It was an hour show. I had a segment that went maybe 15 minutes a night. I did that. And then I'm sure you don't remember this, but I do. 1998, 99, 2000, 2001. So for four years, I was on the Golf Channel at major championships, Masters, U.S. Open, some PGAs, didn't do any British for them, went to the British several times, but not for them. But I did some of the first ever golf debate that I'm aware of with Mark Lye, my debate partner, former very good player, Mark Lye. The Golf Channel, believe it or not, I did a whole lot of golf, a whole lot of television. I could go on and on. I'm a veteran on Undisputed. You have Michael Irvin, who's a real TV veteran. You have Keyshawn Johnson, a real TV veteran. And Richard Sherman, who's just getting his feet wet, but would probably tell you that now going into his second year under his belt of doing Thursday night football and almost finishing a football season on Undisputed, that he's starting to feel like a TV veteran. I've done a whole lot, and I plan to do a whole lot more. I'll bang through this one quickly. This is Kurt from New York. This is a call back to last week's show. Kurt says, you never mentioned math on your list of best school subjects. Did you find yourself any good at math? I said last week, English was always my best subject by far. I remind you, I was the oldest and neither of my parents even made it through high school. Neither made it through high school. I didn't really have parents, so I was pretty much on my own trying to figure this all out on the fly with no guidance, no encouragement. Nobody cared in my household about what they used to call the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, no emphasis on studying, reading. I just did that on my own. So I hit seventh grade, as I just mentioned earlier, Taft Junior High School in Oklahoma City and I started making very good grades, such good grades that I was placed in eighth grade in what was called advanced algebra, and I was way in over my head. I couldn't get algebra. I thought I had a pretty good math mind. I'll get to that in just a second, but I couldn't get the concepts of algebra. If two trains leave stations heading toward each other, At the same time, one going 55 miles an hour, the other going 70. I I just couldn't get it. I I couldn't comprehend. My second semester that year, I had Miss Milburn for advanced algebra. And she felt so sorry for me at Taft Junior High School that she said, if you'll come in a half hour before school every day, I will help you. And she did. She helped me. And guess what? I made two of the greatest C's in my life, first semester and second semester, in advanced algebra. And I tell you this story only because it springboarded me across the street to Northwest and High School for 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And guess what? I got to take in 9th grade at Northwest. Algebra, it was just called Algebra 1. It was the very same course I had just struggled through at Taft Junior High School against a bunch of brainiacs, some of whom were bound for Harvard, Stanford, various other elite academic colleges. Weighing over my head until ninth grade when I took just basic Algebra 1 with the rank and file of ninth graders, and I crushed. (laughs) I plused, And it set me up to make an A in geometry, which we had to take as sophomores, and that was all my math requirement in high school. That set me up to make all A's in high school, set me up to become the salutatorian of my class, only because... I made a B in driver's ed, which I took in summer school because everybody made a B in driver's ed in summer school because they didn't want any of us kids to think we were great drivers and be overconfident drivers. Justine Coyle, the valedictorian of my class, my graduating class at Northwest, I'm pretty sure did not take driver's ed. She went on to Harvard. God bless her. I finished second because I took driver's ed. I don't regret it, but I wouldn't have been second in my class if not for advanced algebra at Taft Junior High School. Which brings me to our final question of the day from Jordan from California. Jordan from California who asks, or really just says, you've been throwing around Super Bowl for the Cowboys way too casually. Not a question. It's a statement. It's a declaration, maybe of war. Now, wait, wait a second. Jordan from California. Jordan Love is from Bakersfield, California. Is it possible this is Jordan Love challenging me for thinking and throwing around Cowboys and Super Bowl way too casually for even putting Cowboys and Super Bowl in the same sentence? If so, I will respond to Jordan Love. Jordan, you have had an extraordinary season. Extraordinary. I'm a big fan, supporter, defender. 18 touchdowns to one interception over your last six games. Just astonishingly scary for me given that you are coming to play my team Sunday at Jerry World. But Jordan, the point is, you're not Aaron Rodgers, at least not yet. Aaron Rodgers flat out owned us. He haunted us. He tormented us. Six and two against us in regular season games, two and oh in playoff games. 13 touchdowns to one pick in regular season games, five to one in postseason games, for a combined 18 touchdowns to two interceptions You're 18 to one over six games. He was 18 to two over all games against my Dallas Cowboys. This Jordan is your first year of starting, obviously. You're not ready for this, not yet. We have broken our Jimmy curse. We are meant to be. We will beat your Packers, whether you like it or not. I believe Tampa Bay will beat Philadelphia or what's left of the Eagles, which will send Tampa Bay to Dallas for the second playoff game at Jerry World because the Rams are going to beat Detroit at Detroit. That means the Rams will then go to San Francisco, and I believe this is also meant to be that the Rams, a division rival with a hot Matt Stafford and Puka and Cooper, will shock and upset the 49ers at the 49ers. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. We will beat the Rams at home in the NFC Championship game. Cowboys, Super Bowl. I'm not saying that casually, Jordan. I'm putting those two things in the same sentence monumentally. Thank you for your question. That's it for episode 96. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 930 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.